Well, good morning. This scripture this today is Romans 8, beginning in verse 18 through 30. It's on page 1122 of the Pew Bibles, if you want to read along with me. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for, us, for, for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknows knew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those who whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for our service today, God. I pray as Pastor Aaron preaches the word that you would open our hearts and minds to hear what you will say to us through everything that he preaches out of your word. And God, I pray that we would go away as changed people, growing more and more like your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Chris. Uh, the office can be dismissed. We'll be in John 16 this morning if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And I forgot an announcement. Uh, you men, if a couple of you, or maybe a couple more than a couple, a few of you would mind helping us to roll up that tent now that the sun is shining on it and we'll dry it, we could put it away before winter next week. So as you turn in your Bibles to John 16, uh, maybe you've had a close family member who's gotten older, or maybe you've had someone close to you that has moved away. When we're in those situations, if you're like those people at least, you want to spend time with them. You want to hear memories or an encouragement or maybe some funny stories, receive an admonishment, especially from the older and wiser ones. Your grandparents, you know, you want to give that information to your grandkids. You probably don't want to give them that hunting spot, though. That goes with you to the grave. Or you might tell them, don't rake your leaves next week because more will fall next week after that, and the week after that, and the week after that. 
When my grandfather was getting older, I loved sitting with him. I, I would ask him questions. What was it like to serve in the Navy during World War II? Or what was it like to grow up in the Great Depression? And I know why he was so frugal. Occasionally, he would tell me to remember something, or he'd give me a book to have to reference something for a later date, or he would just say what we all need to know today, right? The world is crazy. We've seen a lot in the Gospel of John so far as we finish chapter 16 this week. We've had familiar stories, familiar teachings, even some challenging things that have caused us to take a step back and think about what Jesus is saying. And so today marks the beginning of the end. Today we see Jesus' final words to his disciples before he goes to the cross. Jesus isn't just thinking, oh, I wonder what these guys are going to do when I'm gone. He knows their conversations. He knows their thoughts. He knows their fears. He knows their concerns. And friends, he doesn't remain silent. He speaks truth. Like a good biblical counselor, he does. He admonishes the disciples to get rid of wrong thinking, but to replace wrong thinking with good biblical thinking. Jesus' last words to disciples can be summarized like this. All the members of the Trinity work for God's glory and your joy through the gospel. Let's pray before we jump into the text. Father, we thank you for from a plan for the fullness of time. You decided to save us to give us your word, that we might behold wondrous things in it. Even this morning, God, we doubt. We have fears like these disciples. We have concerns like these disciples. And so would you encourage our hearts? Would you speak to us this morning through your word? Would you help us to follow and worship and love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see all the members of the Trinity are working. If you caught on, that last song we sung was about the Holy Spirit working. We will sing a song at the end about the Son's work and also the Father's work for us at the end of our time together. We'll also celebrate the Lord's Supper after the message. So first, the work of the Spirit is shown as we start in verse 4, if you want to pick it up. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So these disciples are scared. Things are not sitting well with them. And Jesus' words and his works have shown them his power. But Jesus will soon die. He will rise and he will ascend to heaven. And he knows this. The disciples don't really comprehend what is about to take place. And he knows their concerns in light of what he has done and said. But they're not asking him the obvious question. Where are you going? Peter did ask in John 13, and Thomas said he didn't know where Jesus was going to go in chapter 14. But in those instances, they wanted to know about his departure. Jesus wants them to know about his destination. Jesus doesn't just listen. He shares with them. He asks them questions. He shares with them truth. If he doesn't leave, the Spirit won't come, he says. And that would be a disadvantage, even where there is pain and suffering coming, we see in verse 6. But he says, the Helper will come. Sometimes we talked about that it can be translated as Comforter. Another way to translate this could be as Counselor. Jesus' direct role of counselor to these 11 men who were sitting in the room with him will be transferred to the role of the Spirit after he departs. The baton will be passed to the Holy Spirit. And Jesus tells the truth because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he will send the Spirit of truth, which he announces in verse 13. The Spirit is a person. He doesn't say he will send it. What does he say in the text? He will send him. We've already heard a lot about the Spirit in the Gospel of John. He brings life-giving power in John 7. He's an indwelling presence in John 14. He has a teaching ministry as well in John 14 as well. In Jesus' language, it looks to the future. As Jesus dies, he rises, he ascends. The kingdom of God will continue here on earth by the powerment of the Spirit, working in the lives of God's people even today. The Spirit comforts, the Spirit helps, the Spirit counsels disciples, including you and I, after Jesus' departure in the midst of trouble. But the saving reign of God cannot be fully inaugurated until Jesus has finished his work on earth, until he has died, until he rises from the dead, until he ascends to heaven, until he is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. So go back to verse 8. That's where the Spirit works. It says, to convict the world. It's not Jesus on trial here in the Gospel of John. The world is on trial. The Spirit will come in 40 days. The courtroom is the world. The courtroom is filled with people who are either guilty or not guilty. The case is laid out. The whole world, those who are part of God's people and those who are not God's people, a decision needs to be made. Where God's people live lives of repentance, abiding in Christ, following the word, his commands, obeying them. And disciples, therefore, are not guilty. But the world is guilty. All members of the Trinity are working. But the Spirit specifically works, here we see in the text, to convict the world of three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. 
The Spirit specifically works to convict the world of sin and gives a summons to repent, to change course, to change the way that we are living, to live in accordance with God's Word. Matthew says these words of Jesus at the beginning of his Gospel, where Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the message now at the end of Jesus' ministry is the same where the indictment has been issued. The jury is deliberating. It's time to conform to the verdict issued by the righteous judge. And once the verdict is rendered, the disciples, their penalty is paid. The power of sin is lifted. And while we still live on this earth, the presence of sin still remains. Jesus knows we need help. And so Jesus says the helper will come and help He'll comfort. He'll counsel. And the Spirit's role, as I said, is to convict the world in which we used to be a part of. He issues conviction in three ways, in verses 9 through 11. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. He says, first, it's concerning sin because they don't believe. This is primary in the list because it's of most importance. Conviction of sin shows a need for a Savior. It's not sins in the plural. It's sins I'm sorry, it's one sin to believe. Conviction of sin shows a need of repentance. It's the only sin that matters here. The problem is unbelief, and the Spirit convicts the world of unbelief, to believe. John 1, 11, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. They had unbelief. John three nineteen, The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. They didn't want to believe. John fifteen twenty two. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. They are choosing to reject Jesus. And John 20, we've seen it all already. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in His name. This is the number one priority of the Spirit in our lives to convict us to believe. It's this continued rejection, this continued rebellion. It's the sin that we all are guilty of at one point, which makes us, until we believe, bound for hell. It's not ignorance, it's rebellion. I'm just not going to do it. The Spirit's role is to convict the world of sin, the sin of unbelief. All sins are sins against a holy and perfect and righteous God. James, Jesus' brother, says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of them all. And unbelief is the only sin that can never be forgiven. Because, sorry, because belief is the act that forgives all sin, including the sins of one's past of unbelief. Forgiveness rests on our belief. Matthew 12, 31 says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Rejecting the Word, rejecting the Spirit, rejecting the call and the summons to believe is the only sin that cannot be forgiven. By believing, everything else is forgiven. First, the Spirit convicts of sin of unbelief. Second, He convicts of righteousness because Jesus goes to the Father. He says, Only those who are righteous can come before the perfect, holy, righteous God of the universe, our Father. 
Only those who are perfect themselves can come before the holy and righteous and perfect one. This is what theologians will call the great exchange, where Jesus takes our sin upon himself and he gives us his righteousness, where God no longer looks at me or you as sinful people. He looks upon us by those who believe that first priority as his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And a conviction of righteousness provides us opportunity to approach the Father like the Son does, where we're convicted or counted righteous by the work of the Son on our behalf so that we too can approach the Father. And we've seen lots of exhortations of Jesus to pray. And that's it. More and more we can come to the Father. We can ask things of the Father. We can approach our good, loving Father because Jesus goes away. And we are righteous who believe, and the Father hears us. And so sin and righteousness, and third, a conviction of judgment on Satan. The ruler of this world, Satan, is judge. The verdict is rendered. The presence of sin is still in the world, while Satan has still been ultimately defeated on the cross and through the resurrection. Colossians 2 helps to show this defeat, but this continued presence. Paul says this to the Colossians, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all us, us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When the Spirit comes, He extends the ministry of Jesus in the ways the disciples did not see coming. The Spirit's work is conviction, and it's gracious. It's intended to bring us to God, to see our need for a Savior, to cause us to repent and to follow because of the work of the Son in the Gospel. In verse 12, Jesus says He's got much more to say, but He holds back because they can't bear to hear it right now. He graciously just reminds them, the spirit of truth will guide you into the truth. The son who is the way, the truth, and the life. The spirit will remind us of these truths that we see in his word. And friends, we need truth. Our world, world is full of lies. I don't know who to trust these days. I don't know about you. I'm sure we have our preferences of who we want to trust. But you hear one thing from one channel or reporter, and then you hear an opposite thing from another channel or reporter, or you hear politicians because we have an election coming up. You need to trust me. It's like the boy who cried wolf. For the next five weeks, we're going to just hear over and over and over again, trust me, trust me, trust me. And guess what? They will let us down. And it's probably for those who are older in this room, you have a really big apprehension of trusting any of these politicians who are asking you to trust them. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. It's hard to trust people in our world because things are confusing. People don't always tell the truth. But the Spirit has the same authority as the Son and the Father. 
like the Son was proactive in leaving heaven, walking with his disciples, teaching them all these things, dying in their place, and rising from the dead. The Spirit is active, reminding us of those truths. Rest on those truths, the Word of God that's true. The world hates truth, and so we need the Spirit of truth, and we need the Son who tells us the truth. You can trust the Word of God, and you can trust the God of the Word, where they both help each other to see that each one, the God of the universe and the Word of God, is true and should be followed. Where the Spirit guides us in truth, that matters. Truth that we see in Romans 8. Chris read some of it, but before that, in Romans 8, verse 11, says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Do you need that reminder? I do. Or Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you need that reminder? I do. When I sin, when I fail, when I feel like a wretch, I need reminders from the Spirit, the illumination of God's Word, like Paul continues in Romans 8 that Chris read. It drives us to repentance. It drives us to live a proper life according to God's word that he calls us to. And he equips us to be able even to do that. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons. Remember David talked about that a few weeks ago. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness. It testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We need those reminders when life is hard. We worry, where we have sorrow, we have fear, we have trouble. We need the Spirit to remind us of who we are in Christ. And it's more than just information. It's an intimate relationship. And Jesus says in verse 14, the Spirit glorifies the Son. Just like we've seen that the Son glorifies the Father. And the Father honors or glorifies the Son. Where they mutually glorify each other. The Spirit's work is for God's glory. Where God's glory is tied to Jesus' death and His resurrection, the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the Spirit reminds us of these truths because all the members of the Trinity work for God's glory and for our joy through the gospel. Where the conviction of the world is initiated by the Spirit. That's point one. We're at... 11.45. Got two more points, but they are much shorter. Second, we'll see the reminders of the work of the Son. Verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father... So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while? 
and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. And so Pentecost, the day where the Spirit comes upon God's people, is 40 days from this day. It's a little while. In just a few short hours, Jesus will be crucified. Speaking of his second coming, Jesus says we will see him again in a little while. And the disciples connect the dots between verse 10 about righteousness, but they don't understand fully what is going on here. And so Jesus is gracious. He brings up to them their questions because he won't come talk or they won't come talk to him. Kind of like you with your spouse, right? You can see when they're faced that you need to have a conversation. And if you want to be gracious, you'll initiate the conversation with them. Where the Spirit convicts the world of the work of the Son for God's glory, the Son leaves the world to turn our sorrow into joy. In verse 20, again, Jesus uses the idiom, truly, truly. What he's saying is, listen, pay attention to what I am about to say to you. He's like a little, you're talking to little kids. Look into my eyes. Your sorrow will go and turn to joy as I go to die. And Jesus uses an illustration that I think many of us can relate to, the birth of a child. I have four children. I don't personally know what the pain is of delivering a child, but I've seen what that pain looks like. But when the child arrives, there is no greater joy than many of us have experienced than seeing and hearing that first cry. And the pain goes away. Joy overwhelms the room. The pain and sorrow, tribulation, suffering, and persecution as a result of following Jesus, friends, will go away. The troubles are temporary. It will hurt. It may concurrently hurt. It may hurt severely down the road, but Jesus reminds us of a call to persevere. Verse 22. So also... You have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. He already said he will go and prepare a place for us in chapter 14. Disciples were to abide in him, and he will abide in us in chapter 15. And the Spirit indwells believers. But it's hard, and we forget. We need reminders of truth, and he doesn't just move on. He reminds the disciples of what they need to remember. He reminds us of what we need to remember. John 1 said, if you recall, the law was given through Moses. It's lots of truth, right? But grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Sometimes we need to be told, stop it. We need truth. Sometimes we need a reminder that Jesus just died for our sin. We need a lot of grace, and it'll be okay. There's an ongoing, continued joy 
and the salvation that we have every time we remember the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel. So look around the world. The world hates truth. You know, it's true. Just think about what's getting canceled. That's probably got a lot of truth into it because the world hates it. So what do we do? We keep going. And Jesus gives us another admonition at the end of this section for prayer. He's done that a number of times. There are two words for ask here in the Greek. The first is that you will ask or you'll inquire about something. You'll inquire for nothing, he says. The questions will stop. The other word that's used for asking here is a petition. Based on Jesus' character, his name and his work, you will ask of things from God. You will request and you will receive. You'll ask for the gospel to move forward in the word, the world, and it will. You will ask for this kingdom to come, his will to be done, and it'll happen. You'll ask for God to be glorified and our joy to be full because that's what's lasting and it will take place. God's glory is tied to the gospel. The whole Trinity works. The Spirit reminds us of the truth and conviction of God's glory. The Son goes to the cross and rises for our joy. Where God is the only object of worship that provides true and lasting joy, fullness of joy. When we glorify God, friends, it is true joy. It's what we were created to do. The courtroom drama of the world brings conviction by the Spirit to show God's glory, the crucifixion of the Son to bring us joy, where all the members of the Trinity are working for God's glory and our joy through the gospel. And verse 25 will show us the Father's role, His role of love. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and you have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that, all you, that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. And I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Figures of speech are like parables, and the gospel has been shadowed in the gospel of John and a lot of figures of speech, like a temple or new birth, water, bread, a vine among others. And although these images are vivid, they bring to mind ideas, they are still ambiguous, even to us and to these disciples. And Jesus reminds them that he has come from the Father out of love. He will also leave the world and go to the Father out of love and obedience. Verse 27 speaks of God's love. 
His love for disciples is not a love that is just generally available to the whole world, like we see in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should have eternal life. That is a general love. That is a, uh, a gracious love that's available to all people. God loves the world so much that he gave his son that whoever would be able to see and hear and believe in his son is open for all to believe. But God's love for disciples in verse 27 is because they have believed what they've seen. They have believed what they've heard. It's a belief that produces obedience. Where belief has produced obedience, proving that they are truly his disciples, that they have received eternal life, a life-giving love. John 14, a couple weeks ago, says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Where Jesus has set the example for us to follow. Where Jesus has obeyed. Where Jesus will eventually leave. He will die. He will rise. He will ascend out of obedience. In light of his obedience, Jesus calls us to believe, to obey. And then he calls them to pray again. Ask because God loves you. Jesus' sacrifice opens up new access, a new way of living where believers may now approach directly to God through his presence. Hebrews called Jesus the faithful and high priest, making God accessible to us by his death for us, where we see in Matthew the curtain of the temple that separated the holy of holies from the area that was just holy for us to be able to have access to God directly. Now we can enter in. Now we can speak directly. Now we can ask because the Father loves us. He wants to hear from us. He wants to respond to us. The Father's love sent Jesus to the world on what day? Christmas. The Spirit convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment because of the Son's obedience and sacrifice. And the Son departs on Good Friday. He rises on Easter, we'll see in verse 28 where Christmas needs Easter and Easter needs Christmas. The two holidays are not just holidays. They are events in God's grand plan for the entire universe, His history of redemption that need each other as well as His life and ministry that was perfect. When He does die, He does rise. It's the gospel, the whole working of the Trinity. Where the disciples in verse 29, I love this. Oh, it's that simple. You're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. You're probably thinking as I read that, like, what? No more questions? And so Jesus asked them, do you believe? And that's the question for all of us. The conviction of the Spirit asks us, do you believe? The work of the Son asks us, do you believe? The love of the Father asks us, do you believe? So do you believe? That's the question that we all must answer. And Jesus gives them a warning in verse 32. Knowing that they don't understand it all, the hour is coming at his death that you will scatter. He will be betrayed. He will be rejected. He will be denied by those who are closest with him, who have seen and heard everything that he has done and said. But in verse 32, I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I think Jesus is just, again, setting up more opportunity and the stage for more grace. He's saying, you'll betray me, you'll abandon me, 
but the Father, my Father, will always be with me. He, and Jesus will restore his disciples. We'll see this in the beautiful passage in John 21. And he'll say in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So now Jesus is with us. We know the Spirit dwells within us. And this whole discussion started back in John 14. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And now Jesus says in verse 33, I have said these things to you. He's finishing this time of discussion that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so in the midst of suffering and sacrifice and waiting, Jesus says, peace. Jesus is the best counselor. He rebukes their unbelief and their tribulation, and he replaces it with peace and comfort, the truth that they need to hear. And the Trinity works. Peace comes from the Father who sends the Son to die because of love. Peace comes from the Son whose death in the place of sinners like you and me and suffers turns sorrow into joy. And peace comes from the Spirit who down the road reminds us of what the Son has done for us. And it's a fruit of the Spirit that the Spirit produces. And so as a reminder, the most important question for all of us is, do you believe? If you don't, you won't have peace. The Spirit convicts that the Son will die. The Father loves those who believe. We turn from our sin. We live righteous lives. We submit ourselves to God. And we live lives that are forever changed. And when we have doubts and sorrows and fears, the Spirit reminds us again of what Jesus has done for us and what the Father has promised. Because when He says He will forgive us of our sins by believing in His Son, friends, He will forgive us of our sins. And as the Son goes to the cross, He dies to relieve all sorrow of our sin and He brings us a fullness of joy where we can speak to God and have joy with a perfectly loving Father who listens to us, who delights to give good gifts to His children, especially the requests of others to know Him and love Him. All the members of the Trinity work for God's glory and our joy through the Gospel. And so we have five more chapters in John. Next week, we get to listen in on the Son praying directly to the Father. The disciples get to listen in, and we will see how to pray like Jesus prays. Jesus looks beyond their upcoming defection, but to their restoration, and then to his commission for them. In me, he says, as the vine, there is peace. The world has hate and love for falsehood. We have peace, the fruit of the Spirit. We have joy, another fruit of the Spirit, because of God's love, so we can love as well, another fruit of the Spirit. In a few short hours, it'll look like defeat as Jesus is hanging there on a cross. But he has, as he says, overcome. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have overcome our greatest enemies of Satan and sin and death by sending your Son to die in our place on the cross for our sins. God, that your Spirit gives us eyes to see, 
ears to hear and a heart to respond. And for those who do not yet believe, God, I pray that you would help them to believe. And Father, even this morning, for those who have believed for the first time, we thank you for that. For those who have believed for a number of years, who have doubts and fears ourselves, God, would you use your spirit to remind us of the amazing, amazing work that your son did on our behalf. God, would you help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thank you for making it possible to do so by the work of your son through the gospel, the good news that you save sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God, would you help us to remember that?